There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 161. Today in the show, we are joined by Marcus Lashley, a wildlife biologist and assistant professor at Mississippi State University. And we're going to be talking all sorts of things related to whitetail deer habitat, mineral stumps, predators, and the moon's potential impact on deer. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are going to be joined by Marcus Lashley, a wildlife biologist and assistant professor at Mississippi State University, and Marcus works within the Deer Lab at Mississippi State, and you might remember hearing about that on a past episode when we had Bronson Strickland on here earlier this year, but uh, basically what this means is that Marcus has been and is involved in a whole lot of fascinating research projects related to white-tailed deer, and uh, in particular, Marcus has looked a lot into things related to white-tailed deer habitat. So, Today, the plan is to pick Marcus's brain all about deer habitat and what they need in their habitat, how we can improve it, and um, a whole bunch of stuff related to that, but then also some things related to hunting, too. Um, in particular, he's done some really interesting research related to the moon and its impacts on deer, so uh, I want to ask Marcus about all those things and more. It's going to be an interesting conversation, but before we bring Marcus on the line, and this is for the seven of you who enjoy our long and winding introductions, <laughs> right? <laughs> how are you, Dan? The seven, uh, seven of us. I Frank, think... Tim, John, how you doing, guys? <laughs> I think there's seven people like, all right, I love this section. <laughs> <laughs> so this is for, for those seven. Nice. How nice. are you, man? I'm good. You? I'm very well. I'm very well. Yeah. Had a... Uh, a busy deer-related weekend and busy preparing for an exciting week ahead. Yeah. Uh, sounds to me like you got a big buck spotted in Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so got a little sweaty. Yes, that's for sure. Since so, you know, when we talked um, last time we recorded the podcast, I told you that I'd gotten like a tip about a big buck in the general mm-hmm. area of, of one of my hunting properties. Um, and I was going to go check it out that night. Well, I did go check it out that night, 
and they weren't kidding, I saw a really nice Michigan buck. Um, definitely one of the better bucks I've seen in that general area um, in all the time I've been hunting down around there. So um, Four-year-old? Yeah, at least four, at least four. Yeah. Um, hard to say if he's older than that, but definitely four or older. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, based on where he's at right now with growth, I wouldn't be surprised if this buck makes it into the 150s. Nice. Um, so he's a, I mean, that's a Michigan stud. I've never, right. I'm trying to think here. Um, on any of my Michigan properties that I can hunt, I have not had a buck that big that was on my property, on a property I could hunt during the hunting season. So I have seen deer this big during the summer in the general area, but I've yet to have one that big that stuck around for hunting season. So we'll see. Maybe this is one that does stick around in one of the spots I can hunt. And, um, you know, he'd be a nice consolation prize if Holyfield never shows. So that's, so that, uh, that, that, that for sure is not Holyfield though, right? Yeah, it's, it's not Holyfield. Um, okay. it is in the same general area. Um, so, you know, like I said, if Holyfield's not around, this buck could potentially fill that gap. Um, but no word on Holyfield yet. I've been driving around a lot this area looking for thing, looking for him and, Nothing in the bean fields yet, but um, this is a heck of a deer, and I'm excited about that. So did that, and then have been out a few more nights looking for deer, and then over the weekend I hung three new stands, um, and put a fake scrape tree in on one of my food plots, and moved a hay bale blind to a new area. Um, so been doing a whole bunch of stuff over the weekend, just getting things the final prep situated, and I just have a few little like I got to put one more fake scrape tree up. I got to move a couple cameras and then I'm done until the hunting season for that spot for this general area. So, right. And then what about, cause you mentioned you were going to be doing some public land scouting as well. Yeah. So I can't remember. Oh, you know, I, I think I mentioned that I was going to tell you about the public land scouting I'd done. Um, this was like two weeks ago. Now I spent a good amount of time on some land down, um, down this neck of the woods and long story short, it looks really good. Um, it's, there's some big country. It's kind of gnarly. It's not like the easy stuff. You can just walk into a hundred yards off the side of the road and, um, you know, be in deer. I think that I found some places that are tough enough to access for the average guy that I might be able to find some little pockets of deer that feel comfortable. In particular, I found one spot, there's a bunch of swampy stuff and I found an Island of high ground in the middle of that swamp. And there's just like one little bridge of high ground that connects it to it. And that little funnel connecting the island to the main high stuff was just littered with old rubs and trails coming in and out of there. And I found some what looked like for sure a buck bed down at the end of the point on the island and a few doe bedding areas, um, maybe 50 to 100 yards away from that. So, like, some very promising stuff. Nice. Um, and then I was out actually scouting in the evening, checking out some bean fields that were adjacent to that public and this was just maybe two or three nights ago. I saw a pretty nice buck right next to the public land. Um, not a giant, but at least a three-year-old. Um, and something I'd be pretty pumped about to get on some Michigan publics. So, so yeah, that was good. Like, I'm, I'm excited. It, like, these final pieces are all coming together. And now I realize, like, I leave a week from tomorrow. And I don't come back till hunting season. So, wow. it's nuts. So you're going to Montana just to chill the rest of the summer, and then you're going to be doing an antelope hunt, an elk hunt, and a North Dakota mule deer hunt. (laughs) 
you're kind of off, right? you're kind of off on all of it. Um. Okay. Well, that's I that's because I don't talk to you enough, Mark. I thought we were friends. I know <laughs> that's bad. You're you're kind of close. Um, so I'm going to be sort of hanging out in Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana for the next month, six weeks or so, five weeks. Um, as far as hunts, Montana antelope hunt, then Montana whitetail hunt, that's then right. North Dakota whitetail hunt. And no elk hunt this year? No elk hunt this year. No. Okay. Okay. Just trying to, I think I'm going to try to, you know, like you've been talking about, just try to rack up some points to like yep. go to a, a slightly better area. Cause where we went, it just seems like the pressure keeps on building there. Yeah. Yeah. So most definitely. So yeah. I, uh, I tell you what, I'm uh, obviously this year I finally had to call it, you know, and say, I'm not going to be able to go on my elk hunt this year. No. Yep. So, oh, you know, I don't, man. I don't want to, I don't want to be that dad who something happens and he's like, literally, you know, if I was up in the mountain to the time it would take me to walk back to my car truck and then drive home would be over 24 hours. And I would be, I would just feel horrible for the rest of my life if I miss my son's birth. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't want to be that guy. And, uh, but next year, I will be doing some out-of-state hunting. You mark my words. Good. You you need yeah. that adventure in your life, Dan. I definitely need that adventure in my life. Um, I feel like you, I'm in a cage right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you told me just a couple minutes ago, you wake up every morning, you don't know where you are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on in my life? <laughs> I could be Alzheimer's too. That yeah, could be. Um, can you push your elk trip earlier? Could you do like an early elk trip, like first week in September? Um. Well, I could go – well, it is the first week, right? So um, I thought it was later. Well, see, September 1st is on like a Friday or a Saturday this year. So it's the first week, but the, the opener of that elk season is the last week in August. Now, I could go if I wanted to, but the group of guys – I'm going with a group of guys. So they all have scheduled already to go that first week of September. So I would have to be, I'd be running solo and where, where we had planned on going, you need some experience to go up there and probably experience with someone who knows what they're doing. Um, it's really steep and it's in Colorado. So it's, it's, it is high country. We'll probably be close to 12,000. Man. Well, um, 10 to 12. Yeah. If you want to drive out to Montana and hunt antelope with me for a couple of days, when's that? Uh, the last couple of days of August before, cause there'll be a period of time between when my wife is going to leave, she's going to meet up with a friend, I think, and take off like the last day of August or something. And then I'll have like a two or three days before the whitetail season opens up that I was going to hunt antelope and scout for whitetails. Um, you might be able to still draw a tag. Hmm. Let's talk after the show, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You know, I, I, I can't handle Dan not being able to have a little bit of Western adventure in his life. But check this out, right? So I restructured my vacation hours at work. Uh-huh. And I don't have my phone with me. Well, just wait one second. Let me sh- let me tell you something real quick. Okay. okay. Uh, July, August, September, October, November. So right now, I at, at work, I have accepted and approved vacation from November 6th to November 24th. 
So nice. which the 23rd and 24th is Thanksgiving. So I get those off anyway. So I have three straight weeks off of work. Now that is good news. Right. So the goal is on November 6th to shoot my buck and then that would be nice, right? Don't have to grind <laughs> it out again. And then maybe go to Nebraska. Oh, to do a whitetail or a mule deer hunt? It'd be one or the other. I'd be able to shoot both. I'd get one tag. But that's just daydreaming at this point. I like where your head's at, though. Yeah. Those sand hills, they're calling to you, aren't they? Man, ever since I have ever since I went out there, I think about that place every day. It's yeah. crazy. Well, when we started talking about it last summer, about me yeah. potentially going out with you for for yeah. some type of hunt, that got me like all obsessing about it and thinking about it. And, uh Man, there's a lot of opportunity out there, and you know oh, this is absolutely. this is exactly the kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about in just a couple of days at our live That's podcast right. recording, which is going to be right. pretty awesome. And I just want to remind everyone listening: um, if you are listening to this on the day it comes out, so this is Thursday, July 20th, that this podcast is, is coming out. Um, if you're listening to that now, tomorrow, Friday, July 21st. Dan and I are going to be in New Orleans at the Quality Deer Management Association National Convention recording a live episode of this podcast in front of an audience, and you guys can be there. All you need to do is, is go to qdma.com to get the details. It's 9.45 a.m. on the 21st. We're going to be doing that, talking all about DIY hunting trips, and we've got a, a friend of mine who I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. He's going to be joining us as well. He's going to have some really great insight to share on this topic. It's it's going to be top-notch, so I'm pumped about that. And then just another reminder, that evening, Friday, July 21st, 8 p.m., we're going to have a Wired to Hunt meetup in downtown New Orleans. Um, I'm trying to get some intel from guys that are on the ground there right now as far as where we should meet, but some kind of like bar grill or something like that, some kind of bar down there that's large enough for some people to hang out, 8 p.m., and as soon as we pick that location, I'm going to be talking about it on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll put out the announcement then, probably in the next, you know, anytime now, I'll have that announcement out. So look for that if you're in the area and you want to meet up with us, say hi, meet some other Wired Hunt listeners. That's 8 p.m. Friday, July 21st. So are you excited about that, Dan? I'm, I'm really excited now. It's hot in New Orleans, my friend. I'm excited for it, but it's hot down there. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at the weather yet, but I'm sure it's going to be. Have you, have you looked at the weather? I really don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm, I sweat when it's 40 degrees out, so <laughs> it's not like I'm that guy. Yeah, I believe that. Well, it's going to be a good time. So hopefully we're going to see some of you guys uh, that you're listening right now. Hopefully we'll see you in, in just a short day or so. But um, we, need to, we need to shut this intro down, Dan, because our guest is ready to join us. So let's take a quick second to thank our partners at Sitka Gear, and then we'll be back with Marcus Lashley. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Sitka Ambassador Ed Gramza, who tells us about a surprise elk encounter on a public land hunt in Montana. Back in 2015, some other Sitka ambassadors and I were, were archery elk hunting in southern, southern Montana. And after days of rain and 12 inches of snow, we finally got in on the elk. A buddy of mine and I saw her elk, and we were trying to figure out how to get to him. We saw him, heard him but didn't know where they were. So we ended up just hiking up the mountain, trying to get to where we last saw them. Little did we know after walking through an opening, we were right in the middle of a herd of about 20 elk. They had to have seen us 
but they didn't know what we were. We were in our open country gear, walking right through the middle of a clearing. And unfortunately, we didn't harvest one. The big bull came out, stood behind a tree at about 20 yards, and one of the thermals, the thermals changed, and the cows busted, and they took off. But it was definitely the closest encounter I've ever had with a herd elk. On Ed's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's Timberline pants and Jetstream jacket. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with us now on the line is Marcus Lashley. Thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, really glad to be here. Yeah, I um, I think I first heard about you when uh, the Quality Deer Management Association published a YouTube video of you a yeah. handful mm-hmm. of years ago talking about some of your studies that you'd done related to the deer, or related to the moon in deer, mm-hmm. and I found that pretty fascinating. And since then, I-, I followed some of your work through various studies and research projects you've been doing, and uh, it just seems like you mm-hmm. constantly have your hands in some interesting stuff. So we're excited to yeah, we're excited <laughs> to try to hear more about that. Yeah, can you give us just a little bit of an introduction um, to who you are and, and what it is you're doing? Sure. So again, I'm Marcus Lashley. I'm a country boy from Alabama, and uh, had a, have had a, an intense curiosity my entire life, and that's led me to down this path. Grew up hunting and fishing, and basically have followed that path all the way into a career now in academia. And I work here at Mississippi State University in the MSU Deer Lab and study primarily habitat relationships with a lot of different species. And and one of the ones I'm most interested in, of course, is deer. Definitely. Now, you you had quite a path to get to this point. Uh, I think you were at NC State for a while. And Can you walk us through, like, what what that journey looked like and all the different things you kind of worked on up to this point? Sure. So uh, I got a, a bachelor's degree, actually, here at Mississippi State. And most people don't get a degree at the same place they end up. Uh, for a you know in an academic job, so that's a little bit unusual. Uh, but I did get my bachelor's degree here in forestry with the option of wildlife management, and I fell in love with with habitat at that point and working on habitat. And I went and worked with Craig Harper at the University of Tennessee, and he trained me during my master's. Again, habitat-related work with silviculture, so basically different forest management practices with and without fire, how they affected deer forage availability and quality and those sorts of things. And then I I worked in a couple of different jobs with some different agencies, Uh, worked in West Mississippi all the way up to the Outer Banks of North Carolina and even down in Florida as a biologist, and then went back to get my Ph.D. at NC State, where I worked again on fire and forest management, how it related to deer habitat quality and predator-prey interactions between deer and coyotes. So, And I also got a, a postdoc there at NC State working in that same longleaf pine ecosystem with, with uh, deer and coyotes and fire. Sounds like you've been pretty busy. Have you still got some hunting yeah. time in? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I find plenty of time. You know, at Fort Bragg, when I was doing my research there, I I didn't get to hunt very much for deer, but I'm also an avid turkey hunter. And uh, it turns out the schedule of trying to catch deer all night and then going turkey hunting all morning 
and then sleeping, <laughs> you know, from from noon to about six or seven in the evening, and doing it all over again was a, a pretty good schedule for me. So <laughs> I got awesome. plenty of hunting in. Uh, you know, you have to find time to do it. So nice. whatever that schedule is, you you work around it. I feel like uh, Dan had a similar schedule, being up all night and sleeping till six the next day. But it wasn't for turkey hunting; it was it was something yeah. else in college. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, college. Yeah, yeah college. That's a different college. story. I thought you were talking recently. Yeah. Well, now I guess it's kids, right? That's well, right. you know, when I when I was growing up, I worked on a catfish farm as a night man, and uh, got to work all night. You know, during my teenage years, so I was already used to that kind of schedule uh, for for work purposes but also have had some leisure activities that, that drive me in that way as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So of all these different, I mean, you listed off a handful of different topics and studies that you've been involved in that I'm sure have all been mm-hmm. really interesting to you. But of sure. everything you've worked on, what single project or you know particular topic have you like really clicked with the most? Like which specific aspect just like fascinated you above all else? Well, uh from a, a science geeky standpoint, we would call it indirect effects. So basically, if you think about these systems, they're all food webs. And that web has a whole bunch of different lines connecting lots of species together. Mm-hmm. And it's really intriguing to me that, you know, things like fire could change plants, which change the way that deer behave, which is also affecting how predators behave. And they, you know, the predator changes the way that the prey behave. And, you know, you you start trying to figure out who's affecting who, and you get in this web and realize that they're all connected, and, you know, there are all these caveats in the system. And that really has become the heart of, of what I love. Uh, ecology is really cool. And, it, you know, you don't understand until you really get into the weeds that, that all these things are connected. And, and it becomes really interesting, especially when you start thinking about it from a hunting perspective, because as a hunter, you're the predator and you're affecting how the deer is acting in the environment and how they affect plants. And, you know, it just, those things get me really excited. And that has really become a thrust of of my research program now is to really understand how things are affecting one another and how we can use that information to manage them better. I can I can certainly see how that'd be interesting. Can you give us a specific example of this? Like you kind of mentioned some of the connection sure. points, but I'd be really interested, mm-hmm. you know, what like X variable, if you change that, how does that then trickle down through the chain? Sure. So uh, for just as an example, uh, I've studied fire and I, I'm a pyromaniac. So I mention fire <laughs> all the time. You'll hear it. Uh, I'm always always go back to fire because I really like fire. Uh-huh. And most people don't realize how important fire has been in the, the ecology of the systems, especially in the eastern and southeastern United States. You know, it's been a critical part of the way that these systems work. So just as an example, uh, the timing of fire is pretty critical. And we haven't, we've sort of overlooked that. It seems like a lot of people have measured different response variables and depending on what you measure you know sort of okay growing season fire is best or dormant season's best you know late late season you know different times are better for different things depending on what you're looking at but uh when when you start thinking about deer and when lactation really peaks or you know the demands 
of uh, a deer really peak that's in the middle of the summer and one of the research projects that I've been involved with and we're attempting to publish the data currently show that the phenology of fire so in other words which month fire is set in changes the way that it makes the nutrients available to deer (laughs) and if you actually mimic lightning when lightning would set things on fire the nutrient pulse in the vegetation coincides with antler growth or or lactation which are the two you know depending on whether you're male or not or female those are the most nutritionally demanding so the timing is critical to make those nutrients available but to take that a step further if you start thinking about the predator in the system which is a coyote in this case so that coyote is also trying to eat so uh, one thing I thought was particularly interesting is is uh, mice and rabbits and things like that that coyotes eat are also more abundant after you burn. So coyotes sometimes, in some cases, will actually seek out fire. So they're not doing it necessarily to get deer, although they obviously eat deer. But because they seek out fire, then deer sometimes will avoid fire. <laughs> so it looks like they're avoiding this nutrient pulse when they're actually avoiding a predator that's not even trying to eat them. You know, So you start getting into this really crazy food web, and animals are doing things that you don't think they should, but when you start taking a larger look at the system, it makes sense. Uh, so that's just one really convoluted example, I guess. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Though. How I, long... How long after a fire takes place do do we start to see the results of that change? Like the the nutrients are you talking about? Well, the nutrients or the animal behavior. Okay. Well, uh, so just to give you another example on a on a different species, we we burned in May this past May, and we have cameras that were monitoring the use by lots of species and northern bobwhite and turkeys were in the burned area seeking out the things that were made available by fire less than 12 hours after the fire was put out Jeez. so okay. they can respond pretty quickly and they and they know what's going on it's like they're sitting up in a fire tower watching for smoke and they're going to you know <laughs> they know what's going on so it's pretty amazing the deer is a little bit delayed because they're you know when when foods are being made available to a deer it's through vegetation, so they're eating leaves, and it has a little bit of lag time before those plants start to respond again. But I would say within two or three weeks, the deer are really heavily using those nutrients that are being made available by the fire. Wow. Now, I know that fire is something that's very well understood within the community of pretty serious habitat managers. Um, but yeah. for people that are, you know, just getting started maybe they've gotten to the point where like oh, i want to try a food plot that kind of thing but mm-hmm. they haven't gotten to the point of doing some of this um this more natural yeah. forage type of work can you just explain why or how it is that fire makes a difference in this way like why sure. like what's the sure. actual mechanism that's that's producing all this great forage so uh so the fire is doing several things one one thing that it does is it warms up the seed bed so the soil so it, it removes a biomass that's above ground, obviously, when it's burning it, and it exposes mineral soil and also warms it up and releases nutrients back into it. And the combination of those things make some plants grow really well. 
So annual forbs, which we typically think of as the high-quality deer forages, those they're actually adapted to respond to that that situation that's created by fire. So you end up with with a lot of forbs that respond to it, and that's one part of it. But we also have a another mechanism, which is something I've been studying quite a bit, and that's plants that are that are perennial so they last year after year a tree is a perennial plant for instance Mm -hmm. those have especially hardwoods have adapted to deal with fire by re-sprouting from their stumps after they're top killed so that's really interesting i think we're probably going to get into it anyway that fire is essentially causing the mineral stumps which uh, some of the listeners may have seen videos that we have online about that and that that plant tissue is really high quality because it's trying to get back into the canopy position where it can get sunlight. And while it's doing that, it's making a, a really abundant amount of nutrients available to your deer. So with with fire, mm-hmm. how what what I'm I guess number one. Is there somewhere we can go or a resource if we're going to try utilizing fire in our mm-hmm. management plan? What would you recommend as sure. far as pulling that off in a safe manner and in the right manner to improve deer habitat yeah. or wildlife habitat? Sure. Well, you know, I, I preach about fire, and one of the reasons is it's becoming harder and harder to use because, you know, we have to deal with where smoke goes, and, and uh, there's, there's a perceived liability associated with fire if it gets on your neighbor's property or you know, something like that. And we actually, in, in every state agency, they have a program that is actually, like Mississippi, for instance, has the the uh, prescribed fire program that tra- trains people to be a Mississippi prescribed burn manager. And that that's providing you training to get that uh to get that title so that you can then pull a burn permit yourself and you would actually go through the forestry commission and get a permit you have to write a management plan for that fire that you you send to them and then you have to follow that that uh that plan with your permit and as long as you do that it provides you protection from from the liability so it's designed to protect the landowner to encourage burning because we know now that it's so important. So that's one way that you can get the training to, to get you started on how to use it. Another thing that you can do is contract it out. So there, there are contractors that specialize in burning, and you can hire them to do that. Uh, they're also... In some state agencies, they have a private lands program, and they will have wildlife biologists who will work with private landowners and can work with you on getting that plan set up and even, in some cases, pull the permit for you and, and help you burn it. And I know, like our, our state has an active program where we do that. Uh, most states also have an extension program through the university, the land-grant institution, and they have specialists on staff that are also there to help landowners with this type of thing. So there are lots of different options, although fire is one of the the more difficult things to use uh, just because there's that perceived liability there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely... It takes a lot of of planning. 
Yeah, it seems like there's there's a little more to it, but to your point and to your noted obsession with it, it is such an important <laughs> it's such an important piece of yeah. what's happening out there. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, over the last hundred years or so, we have largely limited the benefits of fire because we perceived it as a threat, and we tried to control fire yeah. completely for a long period of time, which has resulted in a lot of mm-hmm. you know unnatural um, habitat stuff sure. where we're not getting things set back, where we're getting Mm-hmm. tremendous amounts of just mature growth and we're lacking the understory or we're we're fuel loading big forests out west and then that's resulting yeah. in these massive wildfires because we're not letting yep. the smaller usual natural fires happen i mean yeah. is that is you're, that you're, accurate yeah you're right on point you know in the early 1900s there were there were bands of of people who were going around telling people fire was bad and we were trying to get it get rid of it and then it wasn't until we started seeing some effects of that we realized that was a bad idea. And, you know, we've had some, like, like for instance, Smokey the Bear for a long time. That was, you, you may have noticed when, when you were younger, the, the message was only you can prevent fire. Mm-hmm. And now it's only you can prevent wildfire. So they've changed uh, their message a little bit to avoid that negative connotation associated with fire because we like fire fire is a good thing but you know when an arson uh, arsonist sets fire then it's destructive so you know they're trying to make that distinction there we actually need fire and need to use it to make some of these systems function correctly and uh you know people don't realize that and a a lot of people grew up thinking fire was bad and now you know we're, we're trying to change that message well, it seems like uh, your crusade is is working. Uh, more and more people well, seem so. <laughs> to be <laughs> seem to be making it part of their management program. At least it seems mm-hmm. like over the years I've been, you know, monitoring this field and learning it myself. There's just been a consistent mm-hmm. consistent trend of people talking about that, and it's one of those things that is a little intimidating if you don't have experience with it. But um, sure. the benefits uh, are pretty obvious. Yeah, when you know when you don't have fire in the system. The, the way that nutrients cycle through the system is a little bit different. And just just to make this relevant to the average person who wants their does to be able to wean their fawns or their bucks to grow maximum antler growth, the, the time when those things are, are most demanding is actually a time when vegetation is starting to decline in nutrient quality. And the fire, especially when it's timed properly, extends that nutrient pulse and actually increases it dramatically during the times that they need those nutrients. So the the deer essentially have adapted, especially in the southeast, to take advantage of that that resource pulse created by fire. So, you know, without fire in the system, you end up with this gap, and, and it's called the late summer stress period, and you end up with a gap in that quality, and that's a problem when the deer are trying to express their, their antler quality or wean a fawn. So we're talking late summer, and like you said, does are, mm-hmm. are trying to lactate, trying to feed those fawns. Yeah. Bucks are you know, finishing up their antler growth, and that's a time, mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of nutritional need. But you're, you're saying yeah. that the native vegetation at that time, a lot of that stuff is, is losing some of its nutritional punch. Is that, yeah, it, is that right? Yeah, it starts declining. Uh, you know, we don't realize it because it looks like it's green still outside, but the quality of the leaves on the vegetation outside right now is much lower than it was in late May, for instance. The, the same leaf is much lower quality. 
and fire provided you know it's set back that succession so the leaves are still young at this time and that's where you get that now uh, a lot of landowners aren't in a situation where burning is a possibility or you may be a hunter that's leasing land and fire is not a possibility and that's where you can start to get into things like a supplemental food plot program or the mineral stump uh, application those could become really important because of this natural cycle of vegetation when fire isn't in the system. Yeah. Let's talk about those two pieces right there. And that mineral stump um, idea is one that's been particularly interesting. I heard you talk about this on the Deer University podcast a few weeks or a month ago or something. Could you explain what that is, why that's something we we might want to consider using as as hunters and managers? Absolutely. So uh, that same cycle that I was talking about with fire, you can actually cause that to happen with a chainsaw. Or, or a hatchet or, you know, something to cut down a tree. Uh, basically, you take a mid-story hardwood, so it could be black gum or red maple or, you know, an oak, whatever you want to cut down. I normally target species that don't have much timber value. And you basically cut that, that tree down. And it's, remember, I, I was talking about it earlier, they're adapted to respond to that by re-sprouting and growing rapidly to get back into the position they were. So the, the plant is mobilizing nutrients from its roots up into the leaves to grow very quickly. And when, it, when it's trying to regulate that balance, sometimes you can see a five and, and uh, some nutrients. I've even seen an eight-fold increase from the leaf quality before and after you cut it down. So we're talking about a substantial change in the quality, and that's a plant physiological response, especially in fire-adapted systems like the southeast. Those things respond really aggressively to it. So you've you've made the vegetation really high quality, and it's all in the reach of deer. So you're literally just taking a chainsaw and cutting a tree down, and you're timing it so that it produces those, those stump sprouts when deer need it the most, which would be primarily in July for most of your listeners. And that's a good substitute for fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so deer are designed to extract nutrients from leaves. And if you're going to provide nutrients, that is the best way to do it is through vegetation, which, you know, your food plots are vegetation as well. So that's those are good ways to deliver it in the way that it's the deer is designed to extract it. So to what what level or what scale? I guess what I'm asking about is scale. Yeah. What kind of scale do you need to make a some kind of noticeable impact in a localized area with this type of method? Um, you know, you could mm-hmm. burn an acre, maybe you burn 10 acres and yeah. you get a certain amount of food out of that. How many trees do you need to cut in this fashion to get a similar impact with a mineral stump? So, so that's something that I've been working on. I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, at what scale could you start benefiting a population? And the answer is you, you probably have to do it at a larger scale than you'd want to to really impact the nutrition, but it still can be a supplement just like your food plot. And based on our preliminary data where we're estimating how many trees would we have to cut down, so if you took a, a tree, just a, a maybe a five or six inch diameter tree so we're talking about most people could reach around the tree with both hands Uh, so a tree that size if you cut down about a hundred of them it would equal the nutrient 
production of a common warm season food plot. Hmm. Okay. So that's not really that many. It, uh, just to put that into perspective, my, my graduate student that's been working with me on this, Don Chance, and I went out um, maybe last week or two weeks ago and cut down some trees around a stand that we wanted to make a really high-quality bow stand. And I think it took us 15 minutes to cut down 12 trees around that bow stand or something like that. So not much time commitment for the amount of forage you're getting. And, you know, you can use it in a lot of different ways. One, one thing is you're cutting down those trees and making lanes to shoot your bow if you're a bow hunter. Uh, you're also making it the bow, the area much more attractive because that vegetation continues to be produced all the way into bow season. And on top of that, we took all of the the trees that we cut down and would drag them and sort of make a lane to to make the deer walk through in the way that we wanted to wanted them to. So, right. you know, it, it has a lot of different purposes, and it's a really easy way to enhance nutrition deliver nutrients and the way that deer are designed to eat it during that important time, but also has some carryover effects to improve your bow stand. Now, here's a question. Uh, what if the, what if you're doing this in an area with a thick canopy above it, and so that stump isn't going to mm-hmm. get a lot of sunlight? Is it still going to have those quick shoots full of nutrition still? Oh, yeah. Uh, we The initial experiment that we did with the red maples, so that, that was the video that, that you were referencing earlier. Uh, those were primarily in closed canopy forest. Okay. So there was not much light getting to those. Now, when it when it does have some sunlight getting to the ground, you're, you'll get two things. One, you'll get some more plants that are that need sunlight, you know, forbs to respond to that. But also the the stump does seem to do better when it has some sunlight to respond. Okay. Now, another thing you mentioned, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but when I've heard you speak about this previously, um, you talked about, for example, the the maple tree, and you talked about how that's not necessarily something that deer would select for in a lot of situations, doesn't have a huge nutritional punch, but then after you cut it off because of that tree trying to balance out from the the roots up to what's above Mm -hmm. ground, you 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 talked about specifics in regards to protein and other nutrients in those new newly sprouted leaves. Can you give us the details mm-hmm. on that? I mean, how substantial of a difference are we getting after we're cutting these trees and the new sprouts? I mean, this is like yeah. super concentrated punches of nutrition in these yeah. new leaves, right? Mm-hmm. So red maple, uh, just as an example, it's, it's generally in the low teens at the peak quality, which would be you know, late April or May, and then by the time deer would need it for growing antlers or, or what have you, uh, it's declined down to normally around 10. So that's not very good. Uh, normally for peak lactation or antler growth, we're thinking about more like a 16% crude protein, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, so my, the only thing by that time without fire in the system or doing what we're talking about with the mineral stumps, the only things in the landscape really that consistently meet that requirement are forbs. So, you know, a lot of our brows would already have declined in quality by that time. So when you cut down this, let's say, red maple that was 10% crude protein before you cut it, and then you have that re-sprouting vegetation, for a two or three month period after that, 
Uh, we had some that w- got up to even 30%, but on Jeez. average, they're up around 20%. So we've exceeded now what what the uh, requirement is of the deer, and it's on par with the average forb that deer like to eat on the landscape. So we've taken a plant that's not very high quality and changed it, you know, transformed it into something that's extremely high quality. And if you look at the nutrients, like phosphorus was the example I was giving in the videos because it's so important for antler growth and, and lactation, that one was actually a five-fold increase roughly in, in the plants. So uh, most of the time it, it's at least three per, threefold, and sometimes it's up to eightfold, but on average it's somewhere around five-fold increase. And that's what got me really excited about it because it was actually double the average forb on the landscape to include things you would plant in your food plots. So that was a, that's a substantial change in the quality of a, you know, a red maple that, that's not high quality on the landscape typically. We've tra- transformed it into something that is the highest quality thing around on the landscape. Yeah. So yeah. The, the other thing you, you mentioned was about the, the diet preference for deer. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that has also been amazing to me. We, we typically think of these different plant species as being sort of a, a stagnant, you know, deer either like it or they don't like it or they, you know, they, they will eat it, but, but they're not seeking for it. You know, we think of those things as being stagnant. Like Greenbrier is always great. Uh, sweet gum's always terrible. You know, we, we sort of label these different species, but what I've learned from this, experiment some of the other ones is that that is as far from the truth as it could be the the diet selection of the deer for plant species is completely dependent on how you change the nutrients within that plant and which nutrients are limiting on the landscape you know all all these different things are influencing it the deer are smart you know they're they are uh, adjusting their diet to take advantage of whatever they need so if you change the content of nutrients in the leaves of a plant, you're going to change the the preference of that plant for deer. So I think you might have mentioned it, but I want to make sure that I'm interpreting this correctly. How long does the benefit last? So you cut down this tree. How long mm-hmm. are we going to get this um, you know disproportionately high nutritional value from those shoots? So the the primary response where you have the sort of that peak in quality generally lasts for about six weeks and then it starts declining but the ones that we cut in june last year were still substantially higher quality than the leaves uh, on the same species that were not cut down in late september so we're talking about several months out Uh, we still had a, a noticeable nutritional gain from from doing that okay and then how high up are we supposed, should we be cutting these trees down? I mean, is, should we cut them right towards the ground? Is it three feet high, and is it a straight cut across? Or you know, what's the specifics of executing this? Well, uh, I don't know what in terms of making it sprout best, if there's a, a good technique. The, generally, the more of the tree you leave, the, the more sites it has to generate those, those uh stump sprouts but the taller you leave it the quicker it's out of the reach of deer Hmm. so we have been cutting them down to about ankle high and that's been working really well 
And you got to think again. These the reason these trees are responding like that is because they're adapted to deal with fire, which would be killing it all the way at the ground level. So you know they can handle it as as close as you can get to the ground. Uh, you know if we do it about ankle high, we don't have any trouble with hitting hitting the the ground with our chainsaw and doling the blade or something like that. So you know that's that's what we've been sticking with. Okay. And we're getting a really great response with a lot of different species. Yeah. Now, when you when you kind of going back to fire, you know, mm-hmm. we we often think you burn a CRP field or a grass field for for yeah. fire. Are there ever any instances where you would burn, let's say, a timber or a, a mm-hmm. grove of trees? Absolutely. Yeah. That most of my research is actually in forested systems. And most people don't realize that a pine tree, that the reason it has that thick, corky bark on it is to protect it from fire. So, you know, that historically, all of, like the longleaf pine ecosystem is an imperiled ecosystem in the, you know, in the southern coastal plain. And without fire, it goes, it changes into a different community. Like the longleaf pine goes away. So it, it's actually perpetuated by fire. Uh, loblolly pine, same thing. They they are adapted to fire. Uh, even more interesting to me is a lot of basically all of our upland oak forests are also adapted to fire. So you know you can burn an upland oak stands and not harm those oaks. They're actually adapted to deal with it. So you know you you have to take into account your firing techniques and you know you don't want to run a, a crown fire through them, obviously, but uh, you know, low intensity fires, they are adapted to deal with that. And it's absolutely beneficial to wildlife, especially some of them that you want to hunt. So it sounds to me like fire before humans even, you know, started working the land or anything like that has mm-hmm. been a part of the evolutionary system of trees, plants, animals, everything. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that. That's one of the reasons that I've been so interested in it, because it doesn't matter where you look in, in the southern ecosystems outside of, you know, flood plains or, you know, places that obviously wouldn't burn because of water. Uh, when you get outside of those, it's amazing the list of adaptations that almost every species you look at have to deal with it. It really is amazing. And that, that's why I focused on it so much, because I, I just... You know, it's a huge part of every system almost. Mm-hmm. And even even streams and, you know, some of our aquatic ecosystems are actually, you know, have links to the uplands around it that burned. And, you know, a lot of the, the nutrient dynamics and how they move through the systems from from the terrestrial to the aquatic are even influenced by fire. So, yeah, it really, it really has been eye-opening for me over the past 10 or 15 years learning how integral the, this process was to all these systems. It is fascinating. And, and, and it's interesting how you can then apply that understanding to mm-hmm. helping you understand why a mineral stump or why a cut-down tree reacts the way yeah. it does because it's, it's basically simulating its response to fire, which is, uh, which is yeah. pretty interesting. I, I, yeah. I want to make sure I emphasize one of the things you mentioned it makes sense that you utilizing the mineral stump or the or the fire idea to just improve the natural forage available 
from a nutritional mm-hmm. standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. But I think another fascinating opportunity in the very short term for people listening still right now is how you can use these as a targeted hunting tool. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about ways to try to just sweeten the pot at each individual tree stand. So, you know, for mm-hmm. example, I've got a tree stand. I've, I've put a mock scrape in front of it. I've got a little water hole in front of it. Maybe, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, we've got a few down trees that help manipulate a little bit of deer movement. Well, sounds like yep. this is another way to almost introduce like a micro food plot type effect, but instead yeah. of planting something, you cut a cluster of trees in within shooting range of your tree stand and you time it so that when you're in there hunting, there's now these fresh shout or shoots of new growth out of those stumps that are super nutritious and are going to be attracting yep. deer. Um, mm-hmm. You're it, exactly right. Uh, I, I use, in fact... Uh, I talked about it on the the Deer Lab or Deer University podcast. Uh, you know, I, when I first started thinking about the mineral stump idea, I was sitting on a tree stand where I had cut down some trees around it and was wondering why they were, you know, there were deer in there annihilating these plants that I don't think of as high quality plants. And you know, I've been using that for years and finally have done a, a research project on it to try to figure out why the why the deer were doing that. But you're exactly right. It, it absolutely can enhance the available nutrition around your stand, and you can target that to improve your, your hunting experience around those stands. Yeah. I mean, what an easy, quick thing, like, everyone could go do, like, this week is, like, yeah. grab your chainsaw, cut down, <laughs> like, five, four to six-inch diameter trees within range of your tree st- of a couple of your tree stands, and right yeah. there, you've got a little special food source that these deer are going to be hitting in October or November or whatever it might be. And you said July is, mm-hmm. is like, ideal time frame, but could we even go into August? Well, yeah, the the ideal time frame for the deer to take advantage of it to wean a fawn or grow antler would be in June for most people. Depend, it depends on when, you know, it's a little bit different depending on when the fawns are being born and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, you basically a month before whenever the peak in antler growth or the peak in lactation occur would be ideal for them to get the most out of it from a nutritional perspective. But we've cut them down all the way into early September and still have the trees respond. They did not respond as vigorously at that point. But, uh, yeah, any time leading up to bow season is a good time to do that uh, because you do get some some flush and and vegetation from that stump, and it is attractive to the deer, especially when there's not much else to eat, uh, you know, around the stands. That's great. That's a really cool idea. A simple way that you can, like anyone can go and utilize this on their property. Um, yeah. And how many, how many times have you gotten in a tree stand and been like, man, there's, there's something blocking my shot right there. <laughs> you know, it would be really nice if I could shoot 30 yards in this direction. You know, you could use that as an opportunity to clean out a couple of good lanes oh, yeah. and also put a really nice little food source in that lane. I think it's a terrific idea. I, uh, I might need to do a little cutting myself here in the next few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would encourage you to do so. <laughs> yeah. So before we move on, we need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. And today, we've got a great segment on a topic really related to what we've been talking about here with Marcus. Spencer Newharth will take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of central Indiana. 
and Tom is going to be telling us about what the very first habitat improvements should be for a land manager. Good question. Um, some of the first key things, the fundamentals that you want to think about is when you think in terms of what a deer requires, the, the food security cover and water. And uh, the QDMA has a great analogy of the thinking about the lowest hole on the bucket that you need to plug up to keep the water from leaking out. So what could be missing on your property that the surrounding land may have? And so you want to do a quick assessment. Maybe it's food, maybe it's water, maybe if you can, uh, maybe it's cover. If you can look through your woods and see 200 yards, then you've got an issue with, with uh, too much shade, not enough sunlight, creating new uh, potential browse and, and cover for your deer. So maybe it's a timber, uh, a timber, either stand improvement or a harvest or a combination of two that's going to allow some more new growth to come in and thicken up your property. Maybe it's as simple as you not leaving an area alone as a sanctuary. If you're traipsing all over 40 acres and pushing deer off every time you go, then that's, that's obviously an issue. So maybe just an adjustment in the way that you move around and hunt the property and approach things. Uh, if food is your lacking ingredient or your lowest hole in the bucket, then even in timber, it takes some work, but you can certainly clear out some openings and, and plant food. Um, and I would suggest considering both uh, perennial food and annual food, stuff that you can leave in like clover and chicory as a perennial coming back every year and do some fall planted cereal grains and brassicas for the fall time. So you've got a year round program going on. And typically it's not an issue in the Midwest, but if, if water is a lacking ingredient, then maybe you can create a water hole or, or even some of the new systems like the bank's water uh, watering uh, tanks that you can set up that are mobile and fill up and provide water sources for your deer so that they don't have to leave the property to water. Um, again, it's fairly rare, but that could be a consideration. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E-S. So, so we, you mentioned the two tools here. Um, the mineral stump as of, or mineral or fire is something we can fill in this gap of nutrition in the late summer. But then you also mm -hmm. mentioned supplemental food plots. Um, yeah. people talk about food plots all the time. I mean, there's lots of quote unquote food plot experts, um, who talk mm -hmm. about, you know, how to plan them to improve your hunting and what shape and what size and such and such is best. What do you think that hunters are missing when it comes to food plots or, or the experts when they're telling us about what we should be doing from a food plot perspective who's where are we where's the gap what are we not hearing that we need to better understand that's not being you know shared in the popular media well i, th I think the the majority of the messages that are readily available to the average person are about enhancing the hunting experience directly by you know making deer easier to see and that's great i think it's a, a fantastic tool you know it's great to get children involved in hunting fantastic opportunity if you're a bird watcher you can plant things to watch birds you know they can be used for a lot of good reasons and and that's a great message what you probably miss is we keep saying supplemental food plot for a reason they are a great tool to supplement the diet of deer and you're picking you can pick forages specifically to fill in gaps so we normally have two gaps two major gaps in the nutrition of deer in in their you know their habitat that 
that would be the late summer stress period that I was talking about. That occurs because you have this natural decline in native forages and you haven't you don't have mass starting to fall yet. So you have this gap in available nutrition and on the front end of that gap they have a really intense need for nutrients. So that's one gap you can you can use supplemental food plots to help with. The other gap and it's more important in the northern part of the deer range than the southern. The other gap is in the late winter. So, you know, the, the bucks are past the rut. The, the winter, especially in the north, is pretty intense, and they don't have much to eat on the landscape. So when I'm thinking about food pods, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about enhancing the nutrition, especially in those two gaps when they need it. Okay. So, so that that's the message I think gets lost more than any of them. Okay. So what, you know, at a high level, utilizing supplemental food plots, how would you, you know, what type of food plot program or specific forage or anything like that would you recommend as far as trying to fill those gaps? So that's a great question. The The thing that is most commonly overlooked is the importance of summer nutrition. And, and how intense, especially in the south, that gap in native vegetation is. All of our, well, pretty much all of the things you could plant in a warm season plot fill that gap really well. So you can extend that available nutrition through the summer, especially if you're you know, a landowner or a, a leaser that can't use fire or some of these other techniques we've been talking about. You know, that food plot may be your only chance to provide nutrition during that time. So almost all of the warm season plants that that you would you would consider do that pretty well. But most people do not engage in, in summer food plots. Now, speaking of summer food plots, this is something I always wonder about myself. What if we're up mm-hmm. here in the Corn Belt, the Midwest, and you've got yep. hundreds and hundreds of acres of bean fields all around your property so as i would as i would assume there's tremendous summer nutrition all around me with all these bean bean fields everywhere do i need to be worried about increasing summer nutrition when you're in an area like that with the ag community providing so much of that essentially a a massive warm season food plot i think in that situation if you already have soybeans planted all around you you probably should focus less on a a summer food plot program and more on enhancing some of the native vegetation, especially in in your situation, cover is probably a more important factor in the summer. Mm-hmm. And you can implement some of these forest management strategies to really enhance cover and help those fawns, you know, avoid predation and, and uh, you know, help that buck hide from, from uh, predators. So, I, th- I think uh, in some cases that may be more important, and that's certainly one that, that it may be. If you are going to plant food plots, you probably ought to plant something other than the the uh, the local agriculture. So if they're planting soybeans, you probably ought to try something different than soybeans. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, all these plants have different nutrients within them at, at different levels. So if you use other types of plants, in that scenario, you may enhance the availability of, of a nutrient that the soybeans aren't providing very well. Okay, that makes sense. And then to your earlier point, if if we've got it covered in the summer because of the surrounding ag, there might still be an opportunity to fill the gap in the late winter. Mm-hmm. So in my situation, yeah. all these harvested fields, especially these days, people are 
the, the farming equipment is so much more efficient. There's not a lot of waste mm-hmm. grain in these fields anymore. So that certainly seems like up by me, there's a huge gap there in that late winter time period. That, yeah. um, and that and you have a more it. intense winter there. So you're right. That That's probably a more important stress period for you to, to target. To your point, though, it's important to understand, right, it's different in every different location. So trying to understand Absolutely. what it is for you down in Mississippi versus Michigan or Iowa versus Georgia or New York. I mean, I think we're all, we all have different challenges that our, our deer and our habitats are facing. So it's kind of a matter yeah. of trying to understand what's happening here in this region. And I imagine I imagine a lot of state game departments have biologists or different people who can help you better understand absolutely, that in your area. Yeah, yeah you absolutely do. Uh, you have a couple of different resources that are great, and most of them have an extension wildlife prof- uh, professional. Ours is is uh, Bronson Strickland, who you had a few weeks ago on the on yeah. the program. So yeah, uh, yeah, every almost every state has one of those uh, through the university extension. Okay, that's great. I want to I want to rewind just a little bit to mm-hmm. the native forage aspect of things, and um, yeah. right now. Uh, some parts of the country, specifically kind of like where you are, Dan, over there in Iowa, southern Iowa, um, a lot of areas are experiencing some drought right now. And I know you worked on a study related to the impact of drought on native forage and the nutrition it provides and then how deer react to that. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what you found from that study? Sure. Yeah. I uh, So I was working during my, my master's with Craig Harper uh, on that project in Tennessee and in two, I think it was 2007, just so happened we had the worst drought in, on record in the state. So I thought that was a great opportunity to see if that impacted deer nutrition and, and deer diet selection. So uh, I took an advantage of that situation. I collected plants during that drought year and compared them to years that were normal in rainfall. And it had a pretty big impact on on the nutrients within the plant and deer behavior. So uh, the main impact that it had on the forage was it decreased the amount of crude protein in the plant, and also the, the plant goes through accelerated maturation. So basically that means that it tries to grow really fast and produce seed before it dies, so it's really stressed and the plant starts speeding up all the processes. So that decline that we've been talking about uh, for the last uh, few minutes, that, that, that happens quicker during a drought year. The plants are, are just accelerated, so that decline in nutritional quality of those plants is, is happening way before the deer really need it. So with that being said, there are some forages on the landscape that maintain a high quality even during that drought. They're lower quality than they usually would be, but they're still relatively high quality uh, in terms of what the deer need. So what what we saw in that experiment was that deer actually changed their diet selection to focus on only a few species that maintained that high quality. So uh, really interesting that you know, just in that short time period, the deer apparently realized that it's a drought and everything's low quality. I need to pick the few plants that are good. So that makes sense. Now, yeah. bringing things full circle, what about if we're in that situation right now? Let's say we're experiencing some drought. It's midsummer. Mm-hmm. 
and we're, we're thinking, okay, how can we help supplement the deer? Because maybe, maybe I did plant food plots, but the drought has just knocked them out. I'm not getting great production yeah. there. Um, we know that the natural forage is being reduced in quality because of the things you just mentioned there. Mm-hmm. Is this a situation where mineral stumps could be like our, our emergency methodology for trying to boost that drought or kind of help deal yeah, with that I'm, drought I'm emergency? Glad, I'm glad that you uh, brought that up because, uh, yes, so the, the drought is doing several things. One thing you, you have to think about from uh, the – from nature's point of view, when is fire best going to be lit by lightning during drought? So fire would have been prevalent on the landscape naturally during that time, which would have been a natural supplement uh, for deer, but that's not the case in, in most instances now. Food plots can become a problem because if it is a drought, they may fail. So, uh, the mineral stumps could be a really important. They they still respond really well. That tree has so much invested in the root system, you know, so well developed uh, that it can still respond really well. And it should be able to do that because nature would have burned it during drought more frequently. So, you know, it all makes sense when you start thinking about this from an ad- adaptation standpoint. So yes, the the mineral stumps could be very important during drought, and the plants are still adapted to deal with it because that's when they would have been burned naturally anyway. Hmm. So Dan, are you going to get a chainsaw here pretty soon? (laughs) Probably not. I feel like I've been selling a bunch of chainsaws for somebody. (laughs) (laughs) You you really should be getting some kind of uh, compensation for that. Discount or or sponsored by somebody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's, That's what it seems like. Maybe maybe uh, they could fund some research to show how good chainsaws are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, wh- where are you at on, on all this stuff? On the habitat, I know you, you don't get to do as much habitat work in the places you hunt since you don't own land or have exclusive access to anything, but anything on this habitat side of things that you want to know more about? Yes, and this is kind of a – you can answer it vaguely if you want, but, you know, when we talk about habitat for whitetail, we everybody says food – cover water and i didn't know do you have any research that shows that a deer will travel longer distances to a food to a let's say a food source whether that is a field um to spend most of his day in the in optimal cover or do they sacrifice cover to be closer to optimal food and water that that is that's a really great question and has been a, a source of tension among several deer researchers I think <laughs> uh, because we don't always agree. B- but in my from my perspective and the research that I've done and I've followed a lot of deer around and watched this happen and I'm also an avid deer hunter and have have watched deer for a long time and actually designed my own hunting strategy around this idea the cover is much more important to the deer. And and you have to think of, from a deer's perspective, normally cover is actually something that's also edible. So it's plants. So in my experience, the deer ranks cover over other things. So if you have poor cover and really great food, you're not going to hold the deer like you would if you had really great cover and maybe poorer food. 
And let's just think about that from an adaptation standpoint for just a second. It's much more important for a deer to avoid being eaten than it is for it to get its next meal, which makes a lot of sense. In terms of a fitness consequence to the deer, if it gets eaten one time, it doesn't produce any offspring. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it can miss some meals, and it's going to be science. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really breaking this down to the nuts and bolts here. You yeah. know, the deer has to survive first, and right. then if it survives and then has good nutrition, it can produce offspring. But the the precursor to that is it must survive to do either of the other ones. So that's my perspective on it. The deer will choose cover over food. So they're we'll they're willing farther to find it. Right. And do you feel that's the same way with water as well? Uh, well, that one's another interesting question. They do drink water, obviously, but they get a lot of their water in a way that's called it's called preformed water. So basically, that means the water's bound up in something else, and the plants. Uh, that they're eating have a lot, you know, some of them are 90% water, actually. So some of them are, are really high in water, and they get a lot of their water from the forages that they're eating. So a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, you know, I don't know what percentage of the water, but a large portion of it can be obtained from the plants that they're eating. In fact, uh, you know, deer are really uh, attracted to salt during the summer. And if you, I don't know if, how much y'all know or your listeners know about salt and what function it serves in the body it has a lot of them but one of the things it does is help regulate water and if they get this really big flush in vegetation they almost water down their blood by eating all of it (laughs) and the salt can be pretty important to help them regulate that that balance of water in their blood so pretty interesting uh, physiological tidbit speaking of getting eaten you mentioned you mentioned there a second ago <laughs> uh, yeah. the the importance of cover and the fact mm-hmm. that not getting eaten is very important. This is definitely something that um, is related to coyote populations expanding across mm-hmm. the country. And I know you've done some work looking into this, the impact of coyotes, some habitat considerations related to that. Yep. Can you expand on that a bit? Tell us what you found on that front. Um. Well, so. The, the primary thing that we found, and so I guess let me back up for a minute. One thing that we did during that study, we collared adult female deer and then followed them until they had fawns and then followed the fawns. We also caught coyotes and collared those and followed the coyotes at the same time. So we were getting a pretty good look at how they're interacting and, and who's eating what and you know that sort of thing, how, they're, how the uh, coyotes are impacting them. And in our study a large portion of the fawns died. I think we had about 14% survival, which is one of the lowest survivals on that, uh, that's ever been reported was on that study. And the lion's share of those were directly caused by coyotes. So at face value, it looked like coyotes are a big issue in that system. But we also were following the nutrition of those animals and, and uh you know, what was going on in the system at a broader scale. And one of the things I thought was particularly interesting that we noticed, we we would go to find some of these fawns, and occasionally we would walk in on a fawn and it would bleat when it heard us step on a, a stick or something. And 
without fail, everyone that we ever heard bleat starved to death. Wow. So that was pretty interesting to me. And being a habitat guy, I was thinking, well, what is a what is a coyote going to do when it hears a fawn bleat? Yeah. It's going to go over there and eat it. So we actually may have seen coyotes eating a large portion of our fawns because we have a habitat problem, and that makes it harder for them to hide and harder for mom to feed them. Mm-hmm. And then the fawn is responding to not being fed well by bleeding, which makes it easier to find again. One of those so the, the habitat impacts. really becomes a yeah, it becomes a compounding effect. And then we're you know we we were associating the blame with coyotes when in reality it actually was a habitat problem. And you know they changed the habitat management program there and have have started to see a real nice response uh, from what I can tell from the camera data that we're getting from it. Uh, it looks like you know they're getting a response from from improving the habitat. So you know habitat's really important because it provides all of the different things that deer need. You know if you trap coyotes, that's only providing one thing that they need, which is a you know making it easier potentially to avoid coyotes. But if you improve habitat, you improve their nutrition and the ability to hide from a predator. You know, it's just a compounding effect, and it's normally easier. Uh, another thing that was really interesting in that study, and, and uh, yeah, I worked with several other researchers, Chris Mormon and Chris Pernum, Coulter, Chitwood, on this. Uh, one thing that we were shocked about when we started looking at the coyotes their movement behavior they're all over the board they're all individuals and they all do their own thing but we had coyotes and in different age classes and both sexes do this we would collar the coyote on the study area and then some of them moved hundreds of miles in only a couple month period from that study area wow so in one in one case we actually it was so shocking we actually tracked from point to point the entire path that the the coyote coyote made it in about a two month period and it was nine hundred and something miles. Jeez, it's like that that is unbelievable. You know, my point of bringing that up one thing is shocking. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is if you were going to implement a trapping program to try to improve fawn uh, survival. If you trap a coyote, first of all, yesterday it could have been in the state over from you. <laughs> Second of all, tomorrow you may have another coyote in its place from a state over. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, the trapping has to be at such a large scale and so intense and timed right before the fawns are being born that, you know, it, it really becomes a situation where it's almost not reasonable to implement yeah. You know, it, it makes people feel good to kill that one coyote, but in reality, that's all it did was it made a big difference to that one coyote, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of your phone, your phone recruitment, it probably didn't make any difference. Yeah. So, so okay. So if it sounds like really the best way to handle a predation issue with coyotes is to just improve habitat. Uh, I've read a lot of stuff on this, but I'm curious from what you've seen, what is the mm-hmm. best way, what's the best habitat prescription to deal with predation to improve that fawn recruitment? Well, uh, let's think about that and a couple of the tools that we've talked about. So food plots don't provide very good uh, fawn cover for the most part. Uh, 
when we're talking about fawn cover, we're talking about things that are less than waist. We're talking about plants primarily that are less than waist tall. So if you have a a forest that's really thick and you don't want to walk through it, but you can kneel down and see really well through it. So that's pretty typical in the southeast with like a 10-year-old pine plantation. Yeah, it looks like it's a huge block of cover, but actually it's really poor because if you get down to the level of a fawn and a coyote, you know, it's it's uh, un, just not obstructed. Right. So things the things that are most important to improve that habitat or to increase sunlight to getting to the ground if it's limiting. So if you're in a field, it's not a limiting factor. If you're in a forest, it might be. So breaking up the canopy and allowing some sunlight to the ground is, is the most important thing. Light is the most important limiter of plant growth. So that's the first thing. The second thing, fire or, uh, you know, the, even the, the mineral stump idea, hinge cutting, anything to get, you know, more vegetation from waist high and down. You know, the, the more vegetation you can get at that level, the better. Okay. Love so that. Like an, that makes... an old field. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, I talked about food plots. An old field, so, you know, it just has a diversity of different plant species in it. And I'm not talking about sod forming grasses. Uh, I'm talking about, like, some of the native plants that you would have in an old field. Mm-hmm. Those provide excellent cover for a farm. I, I, I read somewhere, and I, I, heck, this could be the paper or the study you were working on. I, I cannot remember who to attribute this to. Um, but I read somewhere that they also found that the increased amount of edge within a habitat is better for fawning. Um, so mm-hmm. lots of different changes in habitat. Is that something that you found yeah. too? Um, yeah, that's uh, that was actually, I believe, Will Goolsby from Auburn okay. that uh, led that paper. And he he took several different sites across the east and looked at what things were contributing to phone survival, and that's the same thing that I've I've found that that edge is creating several things. One, it's diversity. Uh, you know, you have several different plant communities coming together at an edge, and that structural diversity makes camouflage really effective. So that little fawn has a spot pattern and counter shading because it it camouflages it so those edges coming together are important for that and the more of that you have the you know you imagine that fawn first of all it's in really good area to use its camouflage but then if you have a whole bunch of area for a a coyote to search on top of that both of those things would improve the survival of that fawn yeah okay it's just amazing how fragile and resilient nature can be all at the same time yeah so you, well, yeah, you know everything is, is, is that's that's why i'm here I, I just think it's fascinating that everything is so connected and you just you start moving things around in that food web a little bit and you know things start to not work correctly and then they become fragile you're exactly right yeah All right, well, real quick before we move on, and with Habitat still on our minds here, let's pause for a real quick second to talk about food again, as Spencer Newharth is bringing us a quick word from our partners at the Whitetail Institute of North America. This week with Whitetail Institute, we're talking to consultant John Cooner about their special blend of Imperial Whitetail Fusion. 
which is super popular with deer and even more popular with hunters based on the product's outstanding reviews. Fusion is sort of an unusual product for us because it's in part uh, one of our oldest products that we have kept updating and in part because we have ended up changing it so much that we ended up changing the name by continuing to improve it. Uh, the main parts are still the same. There's Imperial uh, Whitetail Clover is the main uh, forage component. Uh, Dr. Hanna, our plant geneticist, finished breeding uh, our newest clover variety a, a couple of years ago. And so that has been added, added to, uh, to fusion in place of the clover we'd had uh, before that. Also, we've increased the amount of the chicory that we've put in there. Uh, the protein level is a little bit higher. Uh, than it was. Uh, it goes up to 44%. The product we had before was called Chicory Plus. And with all those changes and the fact that, that we found Chicory Plus fusing uh, because it led folks to believe it was more chicory than clover, we said we might as well go ahead. It's, it's time to change the name now because we've made those other uh, continuing improvements to it. Imperial Whitetail Clover is number one food plot planting in the world. It's made for a good uh, moisture-holding bottomland soil. Uh, and it's just, it, it is our number one flagship product. And to that, there's been a small amount, say 10%, maybe a little more of the chicory uh, infusion, and uh, that brings the, the total protein uh, provided up to about 44%. If you'd like more info on Whitetail Institute's forage products, check out whitetailinstitute.com, where they also carry some of the top supplements, attractants, and herbicides available. Okay, so... Continuing on the topic of how certain factors influence deer, let's mm-hmm. shift from habitat to the favorite conspiracy theory of the deer hunting world, <laughs> which is the moon. And there's so Smoke much and debate. Mirrors. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. So many questions, so much debate about the moon. I know you've done yeah. some work on that. Could you could mm-hmm. you give us the the in depth details of how you did that study, and then what you found? Yeah. Yeah, so you remember the the study in North Carolina, we, we collared those female deer. Mm-hmm. And the video that you saw from the QDMA was actually right after I presented that at the, the Southeast Deer Study Group. That was based on only that that group of does, which, you know, I had, I don't remember how many were collared at that point, but, you know, uh, quite a few deer. And on that site, there was a clear response of deer especially on some moon phases i believe it was the late the uh the late quarter why am i forgetting the name of it the late half moon. third quarter whatever it uh, is. so there was a big peak especially near dusk during that moon phase and when i added more deer to it after the fact from that site same thing most of the movements that were influenced by the moon were actually at night so you know they wouldn't impact your hunting but some of the response was during hunting hours. So that was pretty exciting. And I actually contacted a number of, of uh, deer researchers from across the eastern seaboard. I wanted to expand that and, and look at this at a, at a higher level. And I got a couple of data sets from Steve Ditchkoff at Auburn, a couple of data sets from Lisa Muller and Craig Harper at the University of Tennessee, and... Uh, a couple of other data sets all the way up to Maryland um, with with uh, Mark Connor up there. So, you know, I think there were maybe six data sets total 
from bucks and does across several states, and I wanted to look at what, you know, are they responding similarly to the moon phase across all these sites and across sexes. And what I found was pretty interesting. Some of the sites, there was no effect of the moon, or not one that we detected. Some sites, females or males responded and the other one didn't. Some sites, both sexes responded in a strong way, but in the sites that they both responded in a strong way, they weren't similar across sites. So then I was, you know, when you get to a point like this in a research project and you don't have anything clear to talk about, (laughs) you know, so it's like, it, became, it becomes pretty hard to publish something like that because, you know, we, we can see varying effects, uh, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but when it does work, it doesn't work the same in different places. So, so I, it's I was trying inconclusive. To figure out it, it, yeah, well, it wasn't inconclusive once I started digging on it. Uh, what I basically came to the conclusion about was the response of deer to the moon were largely dictated by what type of predator they had in the system (laughs) and how intense hunting pressure was and that sort of thing and we were seeing some responses on some sites when they had a coyote as the main predator that was different than when humans were the primary predator or when uh, bobcats were the primary predator it was changing based on that that predator and that makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about the hunting strategy of that predator and how it might be best to evade being eaten by it. So, can you elaborate the, on that? that? Yeah. So, uh, for instance, coyotes are what's called a coursing predator. So, that basically, same as wolves, they basically are are trotting around the landscape, visually hunting, and and of course they have a good nose, but uh, a lot of you know they're seeing prey. So good way to avoid being eaten by that type of predator is to avoid being seen so you might avoid times that it's really easy to see so that you may avoid moving a lot during the night when it's a full moon for instance if you are avoiding predation from a sit and wait predator which would be like your bobcat or a lot of human hunters it's good to avoid places that's easy for that predator to hide from you so that it can ambush you so a lot of what i was seeing seemed to be and and again i haven't published this data but uh that that's what it seemed to be going on is when when you had certain types of predators they would drive a little bit different response and you know uh they're adapting to what you know to not be an eaten you know they're trying to not be eaten, so they're they're changing their strategy based on that. And I think that's why they're, this is sort of like that. I forgot how you put it. I thought it was nicely put the way you did, but it's Conspiracy one of those theories. things that goes around and everybody argues over. All the hunters are always arguing. Some think that the moon's affecting movement, others don't. Well, there probably there's a lot of truth behind any of those arguments, depending on where you are and you know how you're what your hunting strategy is and what kind of predator densities you have and what those predators are and how good the habitat is, you know, just on and on, you probably are having different responses from deer based on all those things. And that's why it's so hard to detangle because they're they're so adaptive. Yeah. They're, they are just doing what suits them. 
another, just a little tidbit, another really interesting thing that I found uh, in that study, and I, I, I didn't have enough data really to explore it further, but I did find some literature that, like even in humans, but uh, the best literature is in mice. Some of your your bodily functions are influenced by the moon. So you'll have things that, you know, like melatonin will will spike in certain moon phases at certain times. And uh, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting is one of those hormones spikes at the same time as, as some of the deer would be moving in mice during that moon phase. And those things, the one that I really keyed in on was one that makes you hungry. So in mice, it's linked to how much, how actively they're trying to eat. So it started making a lot of sense that actually something related to the way the moon influences us through, you know, gravity and and uh, light actually could influence how hungry we are. Wow. Which, yeah, that's, that's starting to get really crazy and you know, the, the work that it would take to, to show something like that would be pretty incredible. But uh, it did seem, I did find some pretty interesting linkages. And again, there, there's literature even showing that the moon is affecting human behavior. So it's perfectly reasonable to think that some of those biological things could be going on with deer, uh, you know, that we don't really understand. Yeah. Huh. So... So you did this study down um, the original study, and then you collected additional data sets from all across the country, and then mm-hmm. from there it got a little more cloudy. Now that yeah. you're sitting where you are now today, looking back on all of it, is there any is there any takeaway that you actually utilize yourself? Like if you looked at all that and you try to apply it to your own hunting situation in regards to the moon, mm-hmm. is there anything that you can say to yourself at least? Okay, well at least I know X that I can use or find helpful. Yes, the the best take home message that I could give people is to hunt when you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh the the moon phase probably does influence deer behavior in some cases and maybe not in others and who knows whether or not you're in one of those situations or whether or not it's changing over time. So uh while the the moon could influence behavior uh is is probably too complicated at this point for us to understand. So I would suggest hunting when you're able. Uh, if you have good conditions and you can get through your day off work, or you know you have that good Saturday lined up, uh, you know go hunting. Deer, okay. you know, one thing about and just to back up a little bit, when we look at the data, and I'm talking about the moon influencing behavior, I'm just talking about increasing how much they're moving at different times. Yeah. It's not like it's not like uh, in some moon phases they're not moving at all. They're always moving, you know. They're always eating. So uh, the best way to take advantage uh, of the moon is just not worry about it and hunt when you can. <laughs> and sometimes you may line up with when is best. I mean, you know, things like uh, the rut they're not influenced by the moon phase. Uh, you know, we show that over and over again things that you could key in on like that where we know bucks are on their feet and moving a lot more, those things aren't aren't affected by the moon. So uh, unfortunately, I know that's not what people like to hear, but uh, that's the best take-home message at this point that I have from it. Fair enough. It's uh, 
endlessly interesting to try to piece that stuff out. But like you said, there's there's not a whole lot of really solid research that can point to there being any type of some anything that we can really latch onto and say is is obvious correlation. I mean, there's mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, you know, there there have been several data sets presented uh, in different outlets and. You know, sometimes they have a really strong case for one thing, and then other ones there's nothing. And then in other cases, it's showing something opposite. And I think when I gathered all those data sets and saw it for myself across all these different places, it became pretty clear to me that there probably is something going on, but it's changing, obviously, across the landscape, and I I don't know how best to predict how it's going to change yet, and I don't know if we ever will. Yeah. Hmm. Have you, have you, um, I know there's been a lot of different things and, and research looking into this. I, I don't know if you personally have, have you spent any time looking into other factors that increase or decrease, uh, deer activity and movement that you can point to and say, yes, for sure. X variable can increase deer movement that we can key in on as hunters. Well, I, I do have a little bit of experience, uh, looking at different weather variables, for instance. Uh, my primary experience has been looking at how coyotes or you know, different kinds of predators influence movements, uh, but they do shift, tend to shift their behavior you know, during the daytime when it's extremely cold at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. Obviously, people probably already do that. There, there are variable effects of different kinds of fronts that could cause them to move more than, than other times. But, you know, again, uh, these, depending on where you do these studies, you find something different. Right. And uh, I think that a lot of it has to go by local knowledge. You know, everybody has their own strategy that they, they have developed over time from the places that they hunt. Right. And, uh, you know, they're, they're probably getting good data. Now, one thing, uh, just a, a short plug, one, one thing that we're trying to do through the Deer Lab, we have a, a hunting app. And uh, Bronson Strickland was pr- the one responsible primarily, and Steve Demaris also. I'm coming in after the fact, after they've already made that. But uh, that app is designed to help us gather some data from hunters all over the place. So that goes into a repository that we could actually then look at some of these types of things. Like, you know, there's some sort of weather event or, you know, the moon phase or th- that sort of stuff. Is there actually are things changing when hunters are seeing deer and when they're successful so really that that will that will be one of the best data sets uh assuming that hunters use it and are truthful uh when they're presenting the data obviously we we're not going to uh you know we're not going to be sharing the data with people that could go steal your hunting stand or something but <laughs> yeah. uh you know that platform is designed to help us inform questions like this because the the methods that we've been using with collaring animals in particular are just not providing really consistent results across the range of deer so you know that tool if we get thousands and thousands of hunters reporting to us when they're seeing deer uh and of course the app is not designed the app is designed to help you with your own hunting and manage your own stand locations and and for you to generate reports to see where you're seeing deer so that's what the app's for, but it's being stored in a way that we could use it to look and see if the moon phase is affecting when hunters are seeing deer in, in general. So, uh, you know, that 
I think that will be a pretty good resource for the deer lab to explore in the future. Yeah. What's, uh, what's ho- the name of that? Hopefully we'll yeah. have a lot of, um, but so it's, if you go to the MSU deer lab website, there's a link on there. It's called the, the deer hunt app, I believe. Oh. Yeah. And it's a free app. It's free for anybody to download and use as they please. And it has a lot of really interesting features in it. Uh, you can manage stand. You can manage like a hunt club, so everybody could see stands that you have on the hunt club, and you can see whether or not somebody's occupying the stand, those sorts of things. But you can also create a side hunt club for your own stands, where the rest of the people in the hunt club can't see them. <laughs> so you have some privacy options in it to to uh, do that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of a lot of really cool things in that app that you could use and this is a again available on on you know an ios or an android okay so uh really cool app and and it'll help us it's called yeah it is called the deer hunt app uh yeah it'll help us answer some of these questions hopefully we can you know give you a more straight forward answer on how the moon affects deer or or what weather patterns affect deer behavior that could help you harvest that big buck there you go. Some a citizen science opportunity there for all of us to yeah, contribute yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah, we actually want to do a, a couple of different things with the citizen science. Uh, we also are trying to, to figure out a nice protocol to allow hunters to do mineral stumps and then uh, you know send us some data that we can then make available to hunters at a broad scale. So, uh, yeah, we actually have several opportunities like that, hopefully, that, that the deer can help us inform or the hunters can help us inform them about their deer. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, whenever those opportunities are available, definitely let us know. I'll be sure to share that with our listeners because uh, yeah. I think anytime we can help contribute to that kind of thing, it's a good idea, and, and it eventually will come yeah. around and help us too, I think, with those findings. Uh, absolutely, yeah. That, that's the whole point of this is we're trying to learn so that we can share it with the, the uh, other people. So, so you spent so many years studying whitetails and other wildlife and habitat, all these different things. Mm -hmm. What piece of research or what study or what aspect of what you've looked into has actually changed how you hunt the most? Like what's been the most impactful insight you've garnered over the years that actually impacts your (laughs) hunting? Yeah, that, that's a, uh, a great question. And it, it would, so there there are two that are really impacting my hunting. One is the mineral stumps, and it's been impacting my hunting for years, and uh, I just now know why. So uh, I've been doing that around my bow stands and have been quite successful for a number of years bow hunting uh, by cutting those trees down and having that natural source of vegetation right near my stand. Okay. So that's one thing that has really impacted my bow hunting. The other thing, and I primarily bow hunt, so uh, it can be important for you know that rifle hunter as well. But that's what that's what I'm using it for. Uh, the other thing is actually impacting my my bow hunting also, especially on my own property. And I, I followed while I was in Tennessee working with with Craig. Uh, I followed acorn production of white oaks for a number of years. And it was pretty interesting to look at individual oaks and follow them over time. And it turns out about 50% of oaks will produce almost no mast. 
so uh, I thought that was really interesting, and the reason it's impacting my hunting now is actually marked trees based on their production potential on my property and then cut all the rest of them down. Wow. Uh, so that, that thinning basically released all of my excellent producers, and now they, they produce an ungodly amount of mast, and I love sitting next to one of them with a, a you know, archery equipment. It has made deer a little bit harder to find, though, because we have a lot of great cover uh, with these awesome producers spread out within that cover. So, uh, you know, it's improved the habitat dramatically, but, but that, that oak mass production has just been unbelievable, and that has definitely impacted my hunting a, a, a great amount. Wow. So how, how can someone go about really figuring that out for their own oak trees? Because I feel like a lot of us, like we go out there in the summer and we see, oh yeah, this tree seems to be producing. If, mm-hmm. if at all, I mean, a lot of people probably don't pay attention to that at all, but people that do pay, yeah. t- pay attention to oaks, imagine that might be the extent of it. Is that, is this tree producing or not this year? And, mm-hmm. you know, will I hunt near it? How could we well, determine whether or not this is an oak tree to keep or an oak tree to get rid of? When I was looking at that study, I was trying to figure out, is there a characteristic of the trees that would predict whether or not it's going to be a good producer? And the short answer to that is no. It it seems to be a genetic uh, predisposition of that tree. It's either good genetics to produce a lot of acorns or it doesn't. So if it doesn't, you, it doesn't matter what you do. You can release that tree. You can fertilize it. You know, it doesn't matter. It's never going to produce a lot of mast. Gotcha. The excellent producer, on the other hand, is always going to produce a lot of mast, no matter what you do. So you can enhance that, particularly by releasing it, by cutting trees around it down and letting its canopy expand. So with that being said, to determine whether or not it's a good producer, you need to follow whether or not that, that tree has produced for a couple of couple or three years. And particularly if you follow it for three years, with about 90% certainty, you can estimate which ones are excellent producers and which ones are poor. So that's pretty that's a pretty big deal if you were going to try to thin a stand. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to thin their oak stand because they don't want to cut down any oaks that are going to produce mast. Well, this is the sort of that that silver lining where you could actually cut down about half of your oaks and actually improve mass production because you cut down only oaks that didn't produce anything. So they could be a very useful tool. Uh, So if you follow them for a few years, especially if you follow them three years, and of course the better the the, the data will be the longer that you follow the tree. But if you follow it for three years and it produces an acorn, out two out of those three years, then it's probably in the excellent category. Hmm. And then uh, when so, you cut those trees down, then you can plan on taking advantage of the mineral stump that season two, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just so you said for that season, just, just one note, I have cut down mineral stumps that are five years old now, and the deer are still just crushing them. Wow. So uh, the deer actually will help you keep that thing producing for several years in some cases and so, so uh yeah, you might you might get several years out of it out of the uh mineral stumps around those trees that you've released that are also producing you know a ton of mast and so we're gonna keep circling back to the mineral stumps here but it is <laughs> an interesting idea so i'm thinking if, if i'm interpreting this correctly these mineral stumps could last years if 
there's enough browse pressure. So if there's enough deer mm-hmm. to keep that knocked down, so it doesn't grow yeah. to reach uh, you know maturity again, because because the process is right that that tree is trying to balance itself from what's below ground, yeah. the root system below ground to what's above ground. So as long as what's above mm-hmm. ground is is not substantial, as long as the deer keep it knocked down, it'll keep yeah. being a mineral stump and producing the superfood, right? Yeah, I, I I don't know. Biologically, it should still be a superfood. I have not collected the data on the nutrient content of any of them that have been going more than a year yet. Uh, but I will say in terms of the deer behavioral response to it, Yes, they will continue to come back and hit that thing over and over again. And if the browse pressure is substantial enough, well, if it if it's too, there's sort of a, a balance there. If it's too intense, it'll just kill the plant. But it, you know, if it's not intense enough, the plant will grow out of it. Right. So what so I'm wondering, it'll grow out of the reach. So there's sort of a, you know, a, a mid range there where you want a lot of browse pressure on it, but not so much that they just kill the plant. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, in some cases, I, I've, hit, I've actually, it seems like that'd be hard to hit that range, but most of the time uh, when I've cut 10 or 12 of these things down, the deer will keep it at the right height to keep utilizing it for a couple of seasons normally. So is there, could, could we manufacture that same... Um, mechanism. So let's say we're in a situation where there's not enough browse pressure to keep it knocked down. So after year one, I can tell it's mm-hmm. it's going to be growing too much. What if I go and prune it? What if I trim it every year to keep it down in that sweet spot? Could I kind of artificially maintain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can for a few years at least. Eventually the plant will run out of resources. And based on that fact, you'd probably expect that the the huge bump in quality you get from the first time may not happen the next time because the the trees already used some of its resources. Uh, again, I don't have data on that, but intuitively that's what I think would happen. So the the short answer is yes, you could continually cut the same one down to make it available to deer, but at some point it will just die because it won't have enough resources to keep responding to that. Gotcha. So uh, yeah. In short, you could if you if you cut a bunch of them down and some of them some of them get out of the reach of deer, you could go cut them down again. Hmm. All right. Well, Dan, do you have any final questions for Marcus here? What kind of change saw do I need to buy? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, whatever you can effectively cut a tree down with. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, I've used a, a variety of different kinds of chainsaws and even used an axe and a hatchet. Uh, you know, it all works. So. <laughs> all right. Find something on sale at Tractor Supply, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> all right. Well, anything else that you want to leave our listeners with, Marcus? Is there any point that we haven't gotten to or any kind of pet project you want to make sure that uh, people know about? No, uh, just I'm I'm glad everybody has been listening, and and thanks for having me on the show. And you know, uh, I always encourage the the listeners to come check out our Facebook page and social media, uh, the MSU Deer Lab web page. Uh, great resources, and and uh, keep listening to your podcast. 
Terrific. You've got great information. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you, Marcus. Absolutely. Same back to you as well. And we'll make sure to have links to the Deer Lab website and Facebook page and the Deer University podcast you guys are putting out. Lots of great information um, that, that I've definitely been able to learn some stuff from too. So thank you, Marcus. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you. And that's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for tuning in for this one. Before we go, though, just want to give a big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And, of course, thank you again for listening. I hope you have a great weekend, a great week. I hope we're going to see some of you on the 21st of July 2017 at our live recording Friday morning. 9.45 a.m. at the QDMA National Convention, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, we'll see you later that night as well, 8 p.m. Location is TBD. We'll be posting it on our Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram. So, thanks again. Have a great day, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.